Chapter Six of the Jewel by Anton Chekhov, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was agreed to drive about five miles out of town on the road to the south, to stop near Duhan at the junction of two streams, the Black River and the Yellow River, and to cook fish soup. They started out soon after five. Foremost of the party in a sharabang drove Samolenko and Laevsky. They were followed by Maria Konstantinovna, Nadezhda Fyodorovna, Katya and Kostya, in a coach with three horses, carrying with them the crockery and a basket with provisions. In the next carriage came the police captain, Kirilin, and the young Achmianov, the son of the shopkeeper, to whom Nadezhda Fyodorovna owed three hundred roubles. Opposite them, huddled up on the little seat, with his feet tucked under him, sat Nikodim Alexandrich, a neat little man, with his hair combed onto his temples. Last of all came von Koren and the deacon. At the deacon's feet stood a basket of fish. R-r-right! Samoylenko shouted at the top of his voice, when he met a cart or a mountaineer riding on a donkey. "'In two years' time, when I shall have the means and the people ready, I shall set off on an expedition,' von Koren was telling the deacon. "'I shall go by the sea-coast from Vladivostok to the Bering Straits, and then from the Straits to the mouth of the Yenisei. "'We shall make the map, study the fauna and the flora, and make detailed geological anthropological and ethnographical researches it depends upon you to go with me or not it's impossible said the deacon why i'm a man with ties and a family your wife will let you go we will provide for her better still if you were to persuade her for the public benefit to go into a nunnery that would make it possible for you to become a monk too and join the expedition as a priest. I can arrange it for you. The deacon was silent. Do you know your theology well? asked the zoologist. No, rather badly. Hmm. I can't give you any advice on that score, because I don't know much about theology myself. You give me a list of books you need, and I will send them to you from Petersburg in the winter. It will be necessary for you to read the notes of religious travellers, too. Among them are some good ethnologists and oriental scholars. When you are familiar with their methods, it will be easier for you to set to work. And you needn't waste your time till you get the books. Come to me, and we will study the compass, and go through a course of meteorology, all that's indispensable. To be sure, muttered the deacon, and he laughed. I was trying to get a place in central Russia, and my uncle, the head priest, promised to help me. If I go with you, I shall have troubled them for nothing. I don't understand your hesitation. If you go on being an ordinary deacon, who is only obliged to hold a service on holidays, and on the other days can rest from work, you will be exactly the same as you are now in ten years' time and will have gained nothing but a beard and moustache, while on returning from this expedition in ten years' time you will be a different man. 
you will be enriched by the consciousness that something has been done by you. From the ladies' carriage came shrieks of terror and delight. The carriages were driving along a road hollowed in a literally overhanging precipitous cliff, and it seemed to everyone that they were galloping along a shelf on a steep wall, and that in a moment the carriages would drop into the abyss. On the right stretched the sea, on the left was a rough brown wall with black blotches and red veins and with climbing roots, while on the summit stood shaggy fir trees bent over, as though looking down in terror and curiosity. A minute later there were shrieks and laughter again. They had to drive under a huge overhanging rock. "'I don't know why the devil I'm coming with you,' said Levski. How stupid and vulgar it is. I want to go to the north, to run away, to escape. But here I am, for some reason, going to this stupid picnic. But look, what a view, said Samolenko, as the horses turned to the left, and the valley of the Yellow River came into sight, and the stream itself gleamed in the sunlight, yellow, turbid, frantic. I see nothing fine in that, Sasha, answered Levski. To be in continual ecstasies over nature shows poverty of imagination. In comparison with what my imagination can give me, all these streams and rocks are trash and nothing else. The carriages now were by the banks of the stream. The high mountain banks gradually grew closer. The valley shrank together and ended in a gorge. The rocky mountain road which they were driving had been piled together by nature out of huge rocks, pressing upon each other with such terrible weight that Samolenko could not help gasping every time he looked at them. The dark and beautiful mountain was cleft in places by narrow fissures and gorges, from which came a breath of dewy moisture and mystery. Through the gorges could be seen other mountains, brown, pink, lilac, smoky, or bathed in vivid sunlight. From time to time as they passed a gorge, they caught the sound of water falling from the heights and splashing on the stones. Ah, the damned mountains, sighed Levski. How sick I am of them. At the place where the black river falls into the yellow, and the water, black as ink, stains the yellow and struggles with it, stood the Tatar kerbalized duan with the Russian flag on the roof, with an inscription written in chalk, The Pleasant Duan. Near it was a little garden, enclosed in a hurdle fence, with tables and chairs set out in it, and in the midst of a thicket of wretched thorn-bushes stood a single solitary cypress, dark and beautiful. Kerbalai, a nimble little tartar, in a blue shirt and a white apron, was standing in the road, and holding his stomach he bowed low to welcome the carriages, and smiled, showing his glistening white teeth. "'Good evening, Kerbalai!' shouted Samolenko. "'We are driving on a little further, and you take along the samovar and chairs. Look sharp!' Kerbalai nodded his shaven head and muttered something, and only those sitting in the last carriage could hear. "'We've got trout, Your Excellency.' "'Bring them!' "'Bring them,' said von Koren. 
Five hundred paces from the Duhan, the carriages stopped. Samolenko selected a small meadow round which there were scattered stones convenient for sitting on, and a fallen tree blown down by the storm with roots overgrown by moss and dry yellow needles. Here there was a fragile wooden bridge over the stream, and just opposite, on the other bank, there was a little barn for drying maize, standing on four low piles, and looking like the hut on hen's legs in the fairy tale. A little ladder sloped from its door. The first impression in all was a feeling that they would never get out of that place again. On all sides, wherever they looked, the mountains rose up and towered above them, and the shadows of evening were stealing rapidly, rapidly from the Duhan and dark cypress, making the narrow winding valley of the Black River narrower, and the mountains higher. They could hear the river murmuring, and the unceasing chirrup of the grasshoppers. Enchanting, said Maria Konstantinovna, heaving deep sighs of ecstasy. Children, look how fine! What peace! Yes, it really is fine, assented Laevsky, who liked the view, and for some reason felt sad as he looked at the sky, and then at the blue smoke rising from the chimney of the Duhan. Yes, it is fine, he repeated. Even Andreitch, describe this view, Maria Konstantinovna said tearfully. Why? asked Laevsky. The impression is better than any description. The wealth of sights and sounds which everyone receives from nature by direct impression is ranted about by authors in a hideous and unrecognizable way. Really? von Koren asked coldly, choosing the biggest stone by the side of the water and trying to clamber up and sit upon it. Really? he repeated, looking directly at Levsky. What of Romeo and Juliet? Or, for instance, Pushkin's Night in the Ukraine? Nature ought to come and bow down at their feet. Perhaps, said Laevsky, who was too lazy to think and oppose him. Though what is Romeo and Juliet after all? He added after a short pause. The beauty of poetry and holiness of love are simply the roses under which they try to hide its rottenness. Romeo is just the same sort of animal as all the rest of us. Whatever one talks to you about, you always bring it round to... Von Koren glanced round at Katya and broke off. What do I bring it round to? asked Levsky. One tells you, for instance, how beautiful a bunch of grapes is, and you answer, Yes, but how ugly it is when it is chewed and digested in one's stomach. Why say that? Is not new, and altogether it is a queer habit. Levsky knew that von Koren did not like him, and so was afraid of him, and felt in his presence as though everyone were constrained, and someone were standing behind his back. He made no answer and walked away, feeling sorry he had come. Gentlemen, quick march for brushwood for the fire, commanded Samolenko. They all wandered off in different directions, and no one was left but Kirilin, Achmianov, and Nikodim Alexandrich. Kerbalai bought chairs, spread a rug on the ground, and set a few bottles of wine. The police captain, Kirilin, 
a tall good-looking man who in all weathers wore his greatcoat over his tunic with his haughty deportment stately carriage and thick rather hoarse voice looked like a young provincial chief of police his expression was mournful and sleepy as though he had just been waked against his will what have you bought this for you brute he asked kerbalai deliberately articulating each word i ordered you to give us kvarl and what have you bought you ugly tartar eh what we have plenty of wine of our own igor alexeyitch nikodim alexandrich observed timidly and politely what but i want us to have my wine too i'm taking part in the picnic and i imagine i have full right to contribute my share i im imagine so bring ten bottles of kvarl why so many asked nikodim alexandrich in wonder knowing kirilin had no money twenty bottles thirty shouted kirilin never mind let him atchmianov whispered to nikodim alexandrich i'll pay nadezhda fyodorovna was in a light-hearted mischievous mood she wanted to skip and jump to laugh to shout to tease to flirt in her cheap cotton dress with blue pansies on it in her red shoes and the same straw hat she seemed to herself little simple light ethereal as a butterfly she ran over the rickety bridge and looked for a minute into the water in order to feel giddy then shrieking and laughing ran to the other side to the drying shed and she fancied that all the men were admiring her even kerbalai when in the rapidly falling darkness the trees began to melt into the mountains and the horses into the carriages and a light gleamed in the windows of the duhan she climbed up the mountain by the little path which zigzagged between stones and thorn bushes and sat on a stone down below the camp fire was burning near the fire with his sleeves tucked up the deacon was moving to and fro and his long black shadow kept describing a circle round it he put on wood and with a spoon tied to a long stick he stirred the cauldron samolenko with a copper red face was fussing round the fire just as though he were in his own kitchen shouting furiously where's the salt gentleman i bet you've forgotten it why are you all sitting around like lords while i do the work Levski and nikodim alexandrich were sitting side by side on the fallen tree looking pensively at the fire maria konstantinovna katya and kostya were taking the cups saucers and plates out of the baskets von koren with his arms folded and one foot on a stone was standing on a bank at the very edge of the water thinking about something patches of red light from the fire moved together with the shadows over the ground near the dark human figures and quivered on the mountain on the trees on the bridge on the drying shed on the other side the steep scooped out bank was all lighted up and glimmering in the stream and the rushing turbid water broke its reflection into little bits 
The deacon went for the fish which Kerbelay was cleaning and washing on the bank, but he stood still halfway and looked about him. "'My God, how nice it is!' he thought. "'People, rocks, the fire, the twilight, a monstrous tree. "'Nothing more, and yet how fine it is!' "'On the further bank some unknown persons made their appearance near the drying shed. "'The flickering light and the smoke from the campfire puffing in that direction "'made it impossible to get a full view of them all at once.' but glimpses were caught now of a shaggy hat and a grey beard, now of a blue shirt, now of a figure, ragged from shoulder to knee, with a dagger across the body. Then a swarthy young face with black eyebrows, as thick and bold as though they had been drawn in charcoal. Five of them sat in a circle on the ground, and the other five went into the drying shed. One was standing at the door with his back to the fire, and with his hands behind his back was telling something which must have been very interesting, for when Samolenko threw on twigs and the fire flared up and scattered sparks and threw a glaring light on the shed, two calm countenances with an expression on them of deep attention could be seen looking out of the door, while those who were sitting in a circle turned round and began listening to the speaker. Soon after, those sitting in a circle began softly singing something slow and melodious that sounded like Lenten church music. Listening to them, the deacon imagined how it would be with him in ten years' time, when he would come back from the expedition. He would be a young priest and monk, an author with a name and a splendid past. He would be consecrated an archimandrite, then a bishop, and he would serve mass in the cathedral, in a golden mitre he would come out into the body of the church with the icon on his breast, and blessing the mass of the people with the triple and the double candelabra, would proclaim, Look down from heaven, O God, behold, and visit this vineyard which thy hand has planted. And the children with their angel voices would sing in response, Holy God. Deacon, where's that fish? he heard Samalenko's voice. As he went back to the fire, the deacon imagined the church procession going along a dusty road on a hot July day. In front the peasants carrying the banners, and the women and children the icons. Then the boy choristers and the sacristan with his face tied up and a straw in his hair. Then in due order himself, the deacon, and behind him the priest wearing his calotte and carrying a cross and behind them, tramping in the dust, a crowd of peasants, men, women, and children. In the crowd his wife and the priest's wife, with kerchiefs on their heads. The choristers sing, the babies cry, the corncrakes call, the lark carols. Then they make a stand, and sprinkle the herd with holy water. They go on again, and then, kneeling, pray for rain, then lunch and talk. And that's nice too, thought the deacon. End of chapter 6